That was a lot of fun. Um, and for those of us who have been worshiping in here, it's been about the same eight or ten people for the last seven months. So it was fun to have some new folks here in the sanctuary. What a joy to see a baptism. Wow, that was so wonderful. We are continuing in our worship series on being immersed in the biblical story, the whole of the biblical story. And we're looking at sometimes one book of the Bible every Sunday and sometimes two, maybe even five. Today we're looking at First and Second Kings. And let me just tell you a little bit about First and Second Kings and some of the context before I read you today's scripture. It sort of felt like from Genesis through Second Samuel that there's been a continuation of a narrative from Genesis through Second Samuel, which has been about a God who is faithful to God's people. God continues to be present, faithful to rescue God's people from Egypt, to bring them into the land, to provide for them even in the midst of giving them a new form of government by way of monarchy. And it feels like God has always been faithful. And when the people have been not faithful, it has sort of felt like that that has been because of the powers of sin at work in the people. And, and people have made mistakes. People have erred. They've gone one way instead of going the way of being part of the faithful community of the people of God. And then there's been consequences for those behaviors. And then all of a sudden, there's a pretty sizable shift that takes place in 1 Kings. God is still faithful, no doubt, but one of the sizable shifts that takes place is that why people may or may not be faithful is not necessarily because of something they do or mistakes they make, but it's because of the presence of evil in the world. The biblical writers introduce the problem of theodicy. What does it mean that God is good and faithful, and yet when we look around at people who are trying to live into being a faithful follower of God, then nothing but bad thing ends up happening to them. Not just bad things, but people die. All sorts of horrible things happen to them. There's one story that's paradigmatic of this idea, which is in 1 Kings chapter 13. It's a story about a man of God from Judah, a prophet. After the first few chapters, which is about Solomon, the wise king, which is one of David's sons, He's a king, then all of a sudden the kingship begins to break apart from being this thing that was good for the life of Israel. And now is going to emerge stories about prophets. And this man from Judah is a prophet. And he hears the word of the Lord. And he goes to tell the word of the Lord to the king in that time in 1 Kings chapter 13. And he succeeds in speaking the word of the Lord to this king. And then he goes on his way, this man from Judah, and he meets another prophet. And this prophet ends up tricking the man from Judah into doing the wrong thing, to doing something that was grievous in the eyes of the Lord to go against him. And then when this man of God walks away from what he had done, a lion comes along and ends up killing him. It's this really sad story. And you're sort of left with what's the moral of the story? It's felt like in the biblical narrative from first chapter of Genesis up through second Samuel that you can kind of ask that question. What's the moral of the story? And you can start to kind of glean things from it. But now all of a sudden the stories get way more complex. They're episodic. And it's harder to feel this easier sense of, oh, this is what this story means. What is the meaning of a story when the man of God from Judah dies and he does something that he didn't want to do? All of a sudden, the biblical narrative becomes super complex, and it becomes a bit more tricky as the result of the biblical writers introducing the ideas of theodicy, evil in the midst of a good 
and faithful God, and even people who are good and living into this faithful relationship with God. So we're going to see a bit of this problem with theodicy explored as a result of the emerging prophet Elijah now in 1 Kings chapter 19. Let me give you just a tiny bit more background before you hear this story too. Elijah is a really important character in the whole of the biblical witness. If you've read any of the four Gospels, you'll know how important he is because uh, people, when they meet Jesus, they think, is this Elijah returned? Uh, Elijah, if you read 1 Kings, you'll discover that Elijah doesn't die, but he ascends to heaven, this prophet. So people think that Jesus might be Elijah. Elijah shows up on the mountain of transfiguration. So Elijah is a very important prophet. And much of his story is contained within First and Second Kings. And so why he's important is that as all of these bad and evil things are taking place and people worshiping different gods, Elijah calls the people to one way of relationship with God. He begins sort of a reformation movement and says, let's worship only the one who is revealed to our people as I am who I am. Let us worship the Lord alone and not these other gods. And so there's a lot of conflict that happens as a result of some people worshiping this storm god known as Baal and then him telling people to stop worshiping them but worship the Lord alone. And there's so much conflict that eventually one of the kings who's living at the time uh, puts out a bounty on Elijah to have everybody who sees him to try to kill him. So Elijah is running for his life. And that's where we pick up on Elijah's story now in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. You can follow along on the screens in front of you. Listen to the word of the Lord. At that place, Elijah came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts for the Israelites, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. 
Also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Where we pick up in Elijah's story, he's in a desperate situation. He just had this incredible moment of conflict with worshipers of Baal, in which he was able to show them that God was real and alive, and yet they continue to persecute him, and he is running for his life. He's been running for 40 days and 40 nights, and he ends up at Mount Horeb. And there he is at Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is the mountain in the biblical text that tells us that this is where Moses received the Ten Commandments. This is a holy mountain. This is a holy place. And while Elijah is there waiting, hoping in desperation to hear the word of the Lord, for he is a prophet after all, and that's what prophets do. They hear the word of the Lord and then they speak it. They tell it to other people. He's waiting to hear the word of the Lord. And the biblical text is so beautiful, frankly, and that here comes this wind, this strong, powerful wind that's splitting rocks apart on the mountainside. This natural event of the wind should be a thing that he would anticipate hearing and seeing God in, right? The winds that blew the waters apart at the Red Sea. God was in those winds, but God is not in this wind. And then an earthquake. The whole earth is shaking and rumbling. And you would think that that natural event would have revealed the supernatural, but no, God was not in the earthquake. And then a fire, this incredible fire comes and takes place right in front of him, much like the fire that came to Moses and revealed God to Moses in that fire. Is this God? No, God is not in this fire. And then finally, at the moment of sheer desperation, isolation, there Elijah covers his face and he listens, and in the silence, in the silence, God begins to speak to him. And they have this intimate conversation as a prophet and God. And there the prophet says to the Lord, Lord, I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away from me. I alone am left. For the past few months, I've been organizing a Bible study with the high school students in the life of the church. And we've had a couple of meetings now, and it's been really great to be able to do this with them. And a few weeks ago, my uh, daughter and I, we took a day to drive around to all the high school students' houses and to drop brand new Bibles off to them. Getting a new Bible in high schools, that's a great time to get a new Bible when you're in high school, to start to read the biblical text and all these stories that are beautiful, complex, filled with kind of incredible imagination. 
and uh, as a part of our whole series on being immersed in the biblical story, so the high school students are being immersed in the biblical story as well together this year. And so as my daughter and I were dropping Bibles off, we got lucky a couple of times and got to say hi to some people from a safe social distance. And we came to this one family's house and we got to talk to them for a little while. And the high school student we spoke to was a freshman in high school. And we just talked a little while and wondered how she was doing and what life was like for her. And she just basically said, you know, it's really, it's really not easy. It's not, it's not awesome. You have so many hopes and expectations of what life is supposed to look like when you transition from middle school to high school. Make new friends, play sports with other people, even get to learn some good things in school. And there's all sorts of things that are supposed to be so great about being in high school. And, but she said she hasn't been able to make new friends. It's really hard to do on Zoom and classrooms. She knows who not to be friends with, the people who talk for an hour in each of the classes, the people who talk too much. But she hasn't made friends, and it's been hard. It's been really challenging, frankly. It's been a tough few months. It's been a tough, tough few months for her. And as she was speaking, I could just tell in listening to her that what she was saying underneath those words was, God... I alone am left. I alone am left here. I've also spoken with a handful of folks in our congregation and people in our communities and my neighborhood who have lost jobs over the last few months. That's been a really challenging experience for a lot of people that they rely on this income to have a job, to to be able to pay the bills. And you know, life is so expensive here. If you are relying on an income and then you don't have an income source anymore, you just start to get very worried about what's gonna happen if I don't have enough income, if I don't have enough savings. Um, it's been really hard and really challenging. One particular person I spoke to just mentioned because of his age, he was really worried about even being able to find another job, that he might not necessarily be able to compete alongside some of the other younger people in the Bay Area that he might have to compete with to try to get a new job, that he would have to reinvent himself. And I could just feel while I was talking to him through his body language and through what he was saying, that he was saying, God, Lord, I alone am left. I alone am left in this place. There's also been a handful of conversations I've had over the last few months too from people in the life of this church and just wondering about what is church even going to look like? It's like we've moved into this phase of acceptance. If there's the stages of grief, we're kind of in acceptance. This is what it is now. It's Facebook Live, it's doing a few things and we're excited about the possibility of doing a few more things together as our risk level shift and so there's an excitement about that but there's also this worry and concern that the pieces of church that I loved and the dynamics of it that I loved, maybe it was part of this ministry or this ministry or this kind of music ministry that I used to love to do, that they're starting to feel anxiety or like if young people are no longer going to church anymore or watching church anymore, will they ever go to church again? If children's ministry families aren't responding to people's phone calls and text messages, maybe the way they used to, it's like, will they ever come to church again? And I've just heard from folks and conversations and the anxiety in people's worries 
that underneath all of that, maybe I heard them saying something along the lines of, Lord, I alone am left. I alone am left in this place. One of the gifts of um, this worship series is that I've been able to apply a few um, books that I've read that I've really enjoyed over the last few years about the biblical text. And this book is written by a professor from um, Duke University, and she's a theologian, and her name is Ellen Davis, and she wrote this commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures. And I want to read a quote to you now uh, from her about her interpretation of this text. I think it's really helpful for us as we wonder about what this text is about. This is what she writes in her book. She writes this. She writes, I long viewed as bracing the divine answer to that speech when Yahweh points out that there are still in Israel 7,000 pairs of knees that have not bent to Baal. Maybe Elijah needs to get over himself and get on with the job. But I have recently reconsidered the adequacy of that interpretation after hearing this part of the Elijah story preached and discussed among a group of Christian leaders gathered from nine Central and East African nations, including Rwanda, Burundi, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Sudan, and South Sudan. Nearly everyone in the room had deep experience of ministry in desperate situations. Some had arrived at the gathering close to the point of despair. The message the preacher shared with this audience was a completely different reading of God's response from the one I had long assumed to be correct. Not, you are not so special, Elijah. There are 6,999 others as good as you. Rather, this preacher heard God saying, but Elijah, you are not alone and you have never been alone. I was with you on Carmel. I was with you on the road to Horeb, sustaining you with angelic food all the way along. You are exhausted, desperate. I know that. But you have companions in this work. You have a community. Now I am sending you back to work, equipped to carry on your ministry. She retold the story, and her African audience was in no hurry to get to the point. As she dwelt on its details, they found themselves in the narrative. They laid down their burdens of exhaustion and loneliness. They mapped their experience through the story and thus received the inspiration to go on. I love this story from this author. I think I love it so much because... Um, Sometimes when we find ourselves in a desperate situation, and I think that's frankly what we find ourselves in this day, is there some folks, this is a time of desperation and isolation and a sense of profound loneliness as, as many people have experienced, as I tried to share in some of those stories earlier. And this author, by herself coming alongside folks in other desperate situations in ministry areas, uh, she was able to hear a new interpretation of the text. She herself had read this story over and over again. She's a professor of theology. She's read this text all the time. It's a very famous text that comes up all the time in the life of the church. And she had interpreted it in a certain kind of way. And I love what she has to say here, too, because so often we ask, like, what's the moral of the story? What's the point of the story? You know, and 
what the point of the story is, not so much to be able to have a main takeaway that you could tell other people about it, but it's that when you find yourself in a desperate situation, you can map your own experience on to the biblical text. And when she was with other colleagues and other people in ministry who had been in desperate situations, they could hear the word of God spoken to them. The prophetic word was uttered through the biblical text to them, and they found life. Those folks had come to that conference feeling alone, feeling much like Elijah. I alone am left. But no, that's not where the story ends. The story continues with incredible grace to say that there are 7,000 Elijah who have not yet bowed to Baal. It's not all over. And in fact, I'm going to send you out to make new kings and to have a successor in Elisha. Your ministry's not over. Your ministry's not over. God spoke in the silence to Elijah. When he anticipated hearing it in all these supernatural events, there God was speaking in the silence. And he says, you are not alone. I've been with you and you have a community to return to, to continue to do ministry with. There are 7,000 who have yet to bow their knees to Baal, to have yet to kiss the face of Baal, of these statues. I think there's a lot of good news in the story, and there's a tremendous amount of grace in the story for Elijah to send him out of that place of loneliness from that cave that God is going to be with him as he returns to the journey and as he is a prophet to share the word of the Lord with the people. When I think about people in our context too and some of those stories I shared today, I think when we feel like and we find ourselves in desperate situations as well, my friends, we can go to the biblical text so that we can experience and hear the word of the Lord It may not necessarily be satisfactory what we end up finding there, and it may not ultimately bring us totally out of that desperate situation, but what we will find is not maybe simple morals or simple ethics, like if you do this, then you get this, but when we are in desperate situations, when evil abounds in our midst, we can go to these stories in these biblical texts and hear for ourselves how God may speak to us, much like how God spoke to Elijah at Horeb in the silence. God spoke there. God will speak through these texts to us. And so partially that's my hope with these high school students. No doubt being a freshman is really strange and really hard and definitely very lonely right now. But God speaks. God will be with you in that desperate situation. And the truth is there is a community of people that support you and love you no matter what and a church that bought you Bibles so that you might hear and experience that good news and that grace. For folks that aren't working right now, I know it can feel like you're locked into a cave. There's no options. It can feel like it's getting tight around you and constricting. But I just wonder, you must be connected to some people and you could begin to share your story. And God would meet you as you share that story with other people. And there may just be other people that identify with where you are and be able to point you in one way or another way or another way. And God would meet you in that as you work through those things. And as it pertains to the church, I know we're all anxious and nervous and worried about what this thing is going to look like. Where is this thing going to be a year from now? What is church going to look like moving forward? This past week on Tuesday night at session, which is the meeting of the elders, 
they invited the moderators from the deacons, Carol Dudick Nicholas and Christian Halden, to come to that meeting to share a report with Session about how their phone calling effort had gone for the last six months. If you didn't know, or hopefully you do, um, because for the last six months, the deacons led a process of trying to reach out and call every person in this congregation for the last six months to check in on them and see how they were doing and see how connected they were feeling with the life of the church. And they reported back to us that about three-fourths of the church had had a phone call conversation with somebody else as a part of the phone calling effort. That was a great number, a large amount of people. And they told us, of the three-fourths of people who had a phone call and a conversation with them, that more than 80% of the people in this church were feeling connected to the church. Most people in the church were feeling connected to the church, or they knew how themselves to get connected with what was going on with the church community in this time. I thought that was amazing because we had had lots of anxiety and worry. Are people feeling connected? Do they know how to get to the live stream if they want to? There was a lot of worry and concern. And then Carol and Christian were able to bring to us kind of data that said, no, no, people are feeling for the most part connected to each other, and they know ways to have connection with the God as a result of their connection to the congregation in this time. It was such good news to hear from them. It was such good news to hear from them, I think, because, because that's what's going to carry us through this season of pandemic, through the serious of anxiety, through worry and concern, is our connection to one another and our connection to God much like it did for Elijah in that space, where Elijah was in a place of desperation, hiding in a cave, waiting for God to speak to him. And he felt so lonely and said, I alone am left. And then God spoke to him and said, no, no, I've been with you all along the way. And there's a community of 7,000 people that you can do ministry with. You have a community of 7,000 people who have not yet bowed the knee. You are not alone. You have community with me and you have community with these other people. And I think we can find ourselves in this story in that way today, my friends. We are not alone. We have God and we have one another. And as separated, as distant as we might feel, I just think it's absolutely true in our midst as well that God will speak in the midst of silence and remind us of that truth that God is with us, and there's a community. 7,000 have not yet bowed their knees to Baal. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for the biblical text, for these narratives, for these stories, because in our lives, Sometimes we're not just seeking for a point to a story or a moral to the story, but Lord, we're really seeking for you. We're really seeking for assurance that you are faithful even in the midst of times of desperation, times of worry, times of concern, times of wondering about everything that's happening in the world around us. And sometimes when we look in the biblical text, we'll hear you speak, and this is one of those profound passages where we are sure that you are alive and you are at work and you have been alive and at work for so long. 
So Lord, continue to speak to your servants, continue to speak to us in this time. May the word of the Lord pour forth in this place and remind us that there is a community to do ministry with. We love you, Lord, and we lift up the service to you and continue to worship you now by way of singing. We continue to worship in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.